James 5, 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I'm going to retread a little bit of the ground we covered last week, but not, it's not, I'm not, like the notes are different. So what you're hearing should be, should vary a little bit, but you should also think, ah, that sounds familiar as we're going along. If you look at verse 14, the word sick appears there. It's translated feeble, weak, or sick. It could be any of those kind of interchangeably elsewhere in the New Testament. Calling the elders, the presbyteros, as we learned uh, Tuesday in small group, calling the elders is different than calling for the apostles. It's different than calling for somebody who the church believes had a gift of healing people. It's Almost like the church should expect her elders to be men who really know how to pray. Right? The word in 15 for save. Do you see the word save there? The word is sozo, which is translated over 80 times in the New Testament as save or saved. And then 14 times as some variation of made well or made whole. So you might have it either way, depending on your translation. I'm going to give you some examples. Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son. She'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's so-so. It's that Greek word. Okay. Matthew 8:25 They went and woke him saying, "Save us, Lord, we are perishing." This is when Jesus was napping in the boat and it was about to be swamped in a hurricane evidently. The word is sozo, save us, rescue us. Mark 5:23 The man implored him earnestly saying, "My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well." And live. So there it's made well. Matthew 9 21, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Three times for the price of one verse, made well. Well, two verses. Okay. Mark 6.56, whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they, they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And right about now, you should be going, why are we doing this? You'll see. Acts 2.21, it came to pass, sorry, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
So instead of made well, it's saved. And then Acts 2.47, the church was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the same word. Here it's saved. Elsewhere it's made well. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven uh, among men by which we may be saved. So here's the $64,000 question. Which one of those does James mean? Let's look at verse 15 again. The prayer of faith, this is James 5, 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, the word there for sick, while it, it's a different word than what we had in 14, is also translated weary, weak, feeble, or sick. So you got two words for sick in two verses. Both of them can be translated two different ways. Commentators make hay, one direction or the other one, out of this text. One of which I read and usually have great confidence in said this. Listen, this is so important. The heart of the problem with this text lies in just what James meant when he referred to the sick. What does James mean when he refers to the sick? Actually, this is the commentator, there is no reason to consider sick as referring exclusively to physical illness. I agree. Thousand percent agree. Doesn't have to be restricted to physical illness. The problem is this commentator then goes on to explain the verse by excluding the possibility entirely that it could be somebody who's physically sick. Listen to this. James was not referring to the bed rest the bedfast, rather, the diseased or the ill. Instead, he wrote to those who had grown weary, who had become weak both morally and spiritually in the midst of suffering. These are the ones who should call for the help of the elders of the church. Well, unfortunately, for that very concise explanation, let's look at a few places where this word appears in Scripture as well. John 11.1. 1. A certain man named Lazarus was ill. And what happens to Lazarus in John 11, everybody? Yeah, he dies. But spiritually or physically? Pretty sure it was physical. Acts 9, 37. In those days, Tabitha became ill and died. When they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. Acts 19, 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Well, this isn't somebody who's spiritually weak, who's struggling with their faith. This is somebody who's got a disease. Same word for sick as we've got in our passage in James. Romans 14.1, I'll argue for the other side, because you all know I'm an equal opportunity offender, right? Like I, I don't, I'm not trying to trick anybody. Romans 14.1 says, as for the one who is weak in faith, same word, from which John 11.1 1 gets sick and James gets sick. In Romans 14.1, we get weak in faith. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, which is what I'm doing right now. 1 Corinthians 8.9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
My point is, you don't get to exclude the sick from this verse just because you're so terrified that a charismatic person is going to jump out of the closet, speak in tongues, and heal your mother-in-law. You can't do that, Reformed people. It's not fair to the text. Both words mean both things. The battle lines have been drawn. We've got a either option. We've got to pick today. The Bible is telling us that if the elders pray in faith, the sick will be healed and restored to good health. Or the Bible is telling us that if the elders pray in faith, the weary and weak will be strengthened in their faith and restored to full assurance of salvation. Well, I'm saying that it's both. I really do believe that. And to prove it, let's look at the example James gives us. 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Agree or disagree. The instruction to confess sins suggests that we are dealing with somebody whose conscience is plaguing them. That's, that's when confession is necessary. You've done something wrong and you need to get it off your chest. You need to admit that you've done this thing. The instruction to pray for one another for healing suggests we're dealing with someone who is bedridden with illness. Right? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and, and pray for one another that you may be It's both that you may be healed. Confess and pray for one another. We don't have to pick one ailment or the other. Sometimes people are bedridden because their bodies betray them or you contract some kind of a virus or infection. Sometimes people are crushed by despondency, right? And there's like you... They go to the doctor and they get tests. And we've imagined some things up in the last 40 or 50 years that we can diagnose them with. But you go to the doctor and get some tests and everything checks out. And by imagining some things up, let me be crystal clear rather than cryptic and vague. You cannot tell me what the proper serotonin levels for me are. You can't. You can look at my behavior, my attitude, and my actions and suss out that I might be a little low and serotonin or dopamine or epinephrine, but nobody has a, a piece of paper that says a 40, almost 43-year-old man weighing 160 pounds who's bald ought to have this much serotonin. It's not a measurable thing. So when I'm really, really down for a really long period of time and I go to the doctor and they look me over and they go, well, we don't know. Seems like you might have clinical depression. We are out of the exact science realm and into the subjective realm now. How we deal with this problem is very subjective and not very objective. And I would say, here's what the Bible suggests. Confess your sin. Start there. Then call the elders to come and pray for you that you might find some encouragement for your despondent soul. And seek medical help. It's all of the above. 
If I've got a broken arm or a leg, I mean, that's pretty easy to identify and, and tend. Sometimes people are crushed with unbelief. This might be more folks than want to admit it. Being crushed with unbelief is, is being nagged perpetually just between your own ears and your own heart, suspicious all the time that what you say you believe you don't actually believe about the gospel, about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about church. Like it, low key, you don't ever want to say it out loud, but in your heart of hearts, you're like, I'm not sure this isn't all nonsense. And it sticks with you and you can't shake it. And no matter how much you want to believe the gospel, you are just plagued with this piece of you that's like, yeah, but where did God come from? That can be a plague. Y'all are kind of drawn back. I'm surprised. All of these conditions need prayer. All of them. I've prayed for people in the hospital with broken arms. Now, I did not expect that my prayer, maybe this is, I should repent of this, but I didn't expect that my prayer was going to heal their arm right there, like the bones were going to morph back into correct position and reseal themselves. But I prayed. I pray for people that struggle with depression. I don't pray that they don't take antidepressants, but I pray that they will find some relief and some encouragement for their soul. And encourage them to get medical help if they need it. It's all the above, right? Pray for people who struggle with unbelief. The real hang-up that Christians have with this passage and the reason we feel the need to limit the quote-unquote healing that's promised here to spiritual healing rather than physical healing is because you can't teach faith in seminary. That's the problem. You can't teach faith in Sunday school. You cannot fill a person's head with enough doctrine to make their heart love Jesus. So you end up with pastors and elders who don't know what it means to pray a prayer of faith that will raise another person up. Now you've got to make this text more reasonable. If you've got pastors and elders who don't know what it means to pray a prayer in faith to raise you up when you're down, you've either got to excuse the pastors and elders from your life or you've got to excuse the pastors and elders in your life by making the text more reasonable. I don't want to make it more reasonable. If making it more reasonable means reducing every promise in Scripture down to, oh, we'll finally be happy when this life is over. Until, until then, you're just going to have to suffer. Or if you just have enough faith, you'll never get a sore throat again. Either one of those extremes is not reasonable in my mind. I want to know what kind of prayer James is talking about. Amen? Let's keep going. 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
Okie dokie. Thanks. So James chooses possibly the most remarkable example of a sinner praying in all of scripture to make his point, which if you're like me, you don't find super helpful because there's a part of you that believes that Elijah and Jeremiah and Samuel and all the rest of the prophets belong on this Mount Rushmore with Elijah on the top. So telling me how, well, Elijah prayed and it worked for him. Well, of course it worked for him. Of course it worked for Elijah, except here's the thing about James's example. It's perfect for encouraging us to pray when we understand Elijah's own experience. So here's the deal with Elijah. Here's a man who loved and feared God at a time when the kings and governments of the land were wicked beyond belief. Listen to how 1 Kings 16 describes the king. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So that's verses 30 and 33 of 1 Kings 16. Now, I know that's hard for us to imagine, living in a, like a post-Christian country where the government isn't even sure what the difference between a man and a woman is anymore, but we'll try and just picture what that might be like to live in a land where the government is that evil. And here's Elijah plugging away, loving Jesus, obeying God, and trying to stem the tide of immorality in his generation, and nothing is working. Nothing is working. So realizing that an act of God is required to get the attention of those who are in charge, Elijah pronounces this judgment in 1 Kings 17.1. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Ooh. And it worked. It worked. No rain for three and a half years. So here's what we think is happening, right? We think Elijah knows that a good old-fashioned drought-induced famine will bring the government to its knees. He's just sat and he thought about it and he's like, I know. I know what'll work. Famine. Drought. And since he's a super saint, he pronounces this judgment because somehow he knows God will uphold whatever Elijah says. That, come on, don't leave me up here. We all think that on, on some level. So we should pray the same way. That's what James is saying. Brother so-and-so is sick? Not anymore. Sister so-and-so is discouraged? Not anymore. Just got to pray like Elijah. The problem with that is I know it's not going to work because, and you can say this too. In fact, I'll just make it a we statement. We know that's not going to work because we've met ourselves, right? I know what kind of Christian I am. Like, it, we are so pitiful. We can, it would be remarkable if we strung together five consecutive minutes of being obedient to God, wouldn't it? Five whole minutes. If we made it to one minute, we would stop and go, I am doing pretty well. And right there, we would fall flat on our faces. Therefore, we have no reason to think we could call for a drought and expect God to answer. 
Is the math adding up so far? Are you guys tracking with me? If I were a better Christian, I could call for a drought and God would be like, that was James asked for that. I'm doing it. But I'm not that good of a Christian. Nor, frankly, does the thought of eggs reaching $20 a dozen appeal to me as the provider for my household. So we read this passage in James and man, does it discourage us. Pray like Elijah. Well, we aren't good enough. We aren't spiritual enough. We aren't righteous enough. I bet, I'm going to throw this out there, you all have my permission to pretend like it's the first time you've ever thought any such thing. I'll forgive you. I would be willing to bet half of us don't bother praying for someone to get healed because we think their odds are better if we just stay out of it. I start praying for him, God might get irritated. Except here's the thing. That is not what's going on with Elijah at all. Not even close. Look at Deuteronomy 28. I like to turn to these Old Testament passages, even though I've got it in my notes, because it helps me kind of time out how long it might take you to get there. Deuteronomy 28, 15. Y'all got a heading in your Bible? Curses for disobedience or something like that? All right, here we go. 15, if you won't obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all that his, all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make pestilence stick to you until he's consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of. <clears throat> the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and blight and mildew and they shall pursue you until you perish. Listen, 23. The heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Elijah did not imagine up this judgment. Elijah knew and believed what God had said before. I cannot believe some of you are staring at the ground, not listening to what I'm saying right now. That was not directed at you, John. Going to the bathroom is different. Elijah did not imagine up this judgment. I know what I'll do. I'll pray and ask God to not let it rain. No, no. He knew and believed what God had said. So now, what do we think of James's example? Pray like Elijah. Well, that's different, isn't it? James is saying Elijah knew the promises of God and prayed accordingly. Be like that. Be like that. Go back in your minds with me a couple of weeks. Be miserable, mourn, and weep, you rich. And I told you, Christian, at some point, you're going to have to believe me when I tell you that the judgments of God given in Scripture are given for your comfort. 
And we're all like, but I'm rich. I have more than I need. Some of this stuff in here is directed at people who refuse to believe the gospel for your comfort. How do I pray for a government like ours? Be miserable. Mourn and weep, you oppressive rich. God, make them miserable that they might repent. Certainly don't pray that he'll bless them. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Why was Elijah praying this? Why was he asking God for this? Because he was in the midst of a wicked and miserable generation filled with anxiety about the things that he saw happening and losing hope that there would be revival in the land. What about us? What about us? I had more DE&I instruction this week at work. And I've got friends at work who are people of color who tell me they hate it because they will never be known as a person who did a thing. They will always be a person of color who did a thing. We live in a wicked generation. Elijah prayed that God would keep his promises. So should we. Question. Has God promised that we will be healed in this life? Oh, well, recall from last week for me if you were here. We went to Luke 5, and we saw a guy who was paralyzed. And there were a whole bunch of people gathered around Jesus in a house. And he, the, the paralyzed guy, obviously he couldn't get to Jesus because he couldn't even move. His friends couldn't get him to Jesus because there were so many people. So they had this idea to go up on the roof, carve a hole into the roof, and let him down on his pallet so that Jesus could see him and tend to him. Right? Here's what happened when Jesus saw their faith. He said, Men, man, rather, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he said to them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said immediately to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose, picked up what he had been laying on, and went home glorifying God. And last week I said, in order to show that he was capable of doing the harder thing, forgiving sins, Jesus did the easier thing and healed the man who was paralyzed. Has God promised to heal our bodies? Yes. Eventually. Sometimes here and now. But the, the real... The real answer is yes, eventually. But right now, we have, a, we have a much bigger problem. And this is why James reminds us of Elijah. Oh, the church, that we would believe this. And I say that starting with myself. Can you imagine? Stay with me for two sentences, maybe three. Okay. Can you imagine? 
how much less stressed and depressed you would be if you actually thought your sin was your biggest problem. And you know, because of the blood-stained cross, you know your sin's been dealt with. And whatever else is wrong, whatever else ain't working the way we want it to work, your sin, the harder thing to deal with, has been dealt with. James isn't saying if you have enough faith, you'll never get a sore throat. And he isn't saying if you make it to heaven, you'll stop being miserable, but until then, suck it up. That's not what he said. He said the elders ought to be able to show up when you're at your lowest and encourage your heart with promises from God. The elders ought to know how to pray in accordance with the gospel, and the elders ought to know how to remind the church of the things that she forgets. That's what he's saying. When all is said and done, whether your physical illness is cured or not, I'm going to pause for just a second and make sure that you're hearing me when I say this, because it's the whole point of why I'm retreading the same tire from last week. When all is said and done, Whether your physical illness is cured or not, whether whatever is wrong with you physically gets fixed or not, it should be that when you're at your lowest and you send the message, James, Matt, Rick, Cecil, or Lee, I need you to come and pray for me. I can't get up. It should be that when we come and we pray for you, your soul will take the heights because you know your biggest problem has been dealt with. That's what he's talking about. I'm just a man with a sin nature, all the trappings and leftovers of being lost, clinging to me too much. I'm not going to come and pray in James's name that you get better. I'm going to come pray in Jesus' name that he deal with your sin and strengthen your faith and encourage your soul. I'm going to come pray the promises of God. And then guess what's going to happen? The Lord will be faithful. He will encourage your soul and strengthen your heart in the midst of whatever difficulty that you're facing. Imagine how much less stressed and depressed you would be if you actually thought your sin was your biggest problem and God dealt with it. Got to keep bringing this into focus, don't we? All right, let's pray.